Well, I thought about practicing my uh, pre-preaching lunges, as Pastor Kurt sometimes does. Um, And I thought I'd better turn these up, because some of you are probably getting excited. We're about to have cake, and I didn't want you to be sorely disappointed in a few moments when you realize, oh, it's just a lame illustration. So, hello again. (laughs) You may, may remember me from such songs as, just kidding. I'm thankful this morning. I know I don't always like to, just turned out to be a little bit of a, a lot of me here this morning, but we are continuing in a series. Actually, it's an unseries called Mixtape. And we call it an unseries because over the next couple months, as Pastor Kurt and Jan are on sabbatical, the rest of the teaching team, we're not following a particular topic or book of the Bible per se. It's just kind of whatever God has laid on our heart for that week to bring. And so, if you're old enough to remember what cassette tapes are, when I was a kid, when I was a young warthog, okay, since we watched Lion King a few weeks ago, um, I remember sitting by the radio with my finger on the record button waiting for my favorite songs to come on so I could capture them, right? Till I had a, a mixtape full of all my favorite songs. And then if you're really cool, you would copy that and give it to your girlfriend or friend or whatever, right? Now you just curate a playlist on Spotify and hit send. We kind of lost it, but that's what we're doing over the next several weeks leading up to Thanksgiving. The last time I spoke, we not only played Lion King, but I spoke about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, something that has played a major theme in my life recurringly over the years, and that was identity, and specifically, my identity in Christ. This morning, what I feel like God has laid on my heart to bring, I don't really have as much experience with, to be honest. I feel like a little ill-equipped in some ways, but if the stats are right, there's a good chance that many of you in this room, this could be an ongoing um, ordeal, and that is loneliness. The last time I remember feeling lonely was August 22nd, 2001. It's been a minute. And... You know, on the personality test, I'm in the ambivert, like middle range, right? I enjoy hanging out with people and I enjoy spending time alone. I'm definitely more on the introvert side of the spectrum because, man, if I get wrapped up in in a good book or coding a project, I mean, I can go days or weeks before, like, the thought pops in my head, oh, I'd like to hang out with someone, you know? Like, come out of the cave, see the light. And, And so this is what that August 22nd was for me. And I remember thinking, like, man... I'm just craving some human connection tonight. So I started going through the phone book of my phone and started calling family and friends and, and extended family and coworkers that I had numbers for. And everyone that I went through either went to voicemail or I got a quick reply, hey, I'm in the busiest, I'm in the middle of something. Can I call you tomorrow? I'm like, sure. I get to the end of my phone book and I'm like, there is no one that wants to talk to me, <laughs> you know? In retrospect, I probably should have just gone down to Trader Joe's, and when the cashier inevitably asked, you got any big plans for tonight? I'd be like, I do now. What do you have in mind? I digress. (laughs) Loneliness has been trending, especially here in the U.S., for decades, but the recent pandemic kind of ushered in new profound effects for a lot of people. Enough so that five months ago, the U.S. Surgeon General actually published a report or an advisory about the loneliness epidemic. That's what he calls it. And I have the link up here for where you can download this if you want. There's a short URL too. 
I recommend, it's a solid read, and I think it's, it's great insight into the state of our nation right now. It's 80 pages, it's a quick read, I've done it several times, and probably some of you, at least, have already read this because you like nerd out on data like me, okay? Abby, I'm looking at you. Um, I'm gonna read an excerpt from it this morning just so we kind of have a gauge of what it says. It says this, the lack of social connection poses a significant risk for individual health and longevity. Loneliness and social isolation increase the risk for premature death by 26% and 29% respectively. More broadly, lacking social connection can increase the risk for premature death as much as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. In addition, poor or insufficient social connection is associated with risk of disease, including a 29% increased risk of heart disease and a 32% increased risk of stroke. Furthermore, it is associated with increased risk for anxiety, depression, and dementia. Additionally, the lack of social connection may increase susceptibility to viruses and respiratory illnesses. So when we're talking about loneliness, we're clearly not just talking about an emotional thing. Amen? There's some very real medical and physical ramifications of this. The lack of social connection can have a significant economic cost to individuals, communities, and society. Social isolation, among other adults alone, accounts for an estimated $6.7 billion in excess Medicare spending annually, largely due to increased hospital and nursing facility spending. Moreover, beyond healthcare spending, Loneliness and isolation are associated with lower academic achievement and worse performance at work. In the U.S., stress-related absenteeism attributed to loneliness costs employers an estimated $154 billion annually. It's not just emotional effects. What drives these profound health and well-being outcomes? Social connection is, as is a fundamental human need as essential to survival as food, water, and shelter. Throughout history, our ability to rely on one another has been crucial to survival. Now, even in modern times, we human beings are biologically wired for social connection. Our brains have adapted to expect proximity to others. Our distant ancestors relied on others to help them meet their basic needs. Living in isolation or outside a group means having to fulfill the many difficult demands of survival on one's own. This requires far more effort and reduces one's chances of survival. Despite current advancements that now allow us to live without engaging with others, like food delivery, automation, and remote entertainment, our biological need to connect remains. The health and societal impacts of social isolation, I'm sorry, we're almost to the end. The health and societal impacts of social isolation and loneliness are a critical public health concern in light of mounting evidence that millions of Americans lack adequate social connection in one or more ways. A 2022 study found that when people were asked how close they felt to others emotionally, only 39% of adults in the U.S. said that they felt very connected to others. An important indicator of this declining social connection is an increase in the proportion of Americans experiencing loneliness. Recent surveys have found that approximately half of U.S. adults, half of U.S. adults report experiencing loneliness with some of the highest rates among young adults, upwards of 63%. These estimates 
and multiple other studies indicate that loneliness and isolation are more widespread than many of the other major health issues of our day, including smoking, diabetes, obesity, and with comparable levels of risk to health and premature death. Are you feeling encouraged this morning? (laughs) Check out this stat. I know I said it in there, but just blows my mind that lacking social connection is as dangerous as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Look at the lack, that the effect that it has on our expected lifespan. Way more than breathing air pollution, way more than obesity. Isn't that incredible? You know, my first trip to the great continent of Africa in 2009, I went to the country of Burundi, a little, little country that borders Rwanda. And at the time, Burundi was the second poorest country in the world. The average life expectancy for an adult of 38 years. And I, I didn't know what to expect going in. I, I know that there had been a lot of, they were still reeling from effects of genocide and, and war and hunger and rape and famine and all of these things. And I wasn't sure if I was going to land there and God was just going to break my heart and say, okay, here's where you're supposed to move. But what I didn't expect when I got there was in light of these realities, I saw people walking, smiling, holding hands. I saw teenagers on bikes hitching rides up hills on the back of a semi-truck and laughing along the way. I saw people with kids strapped all over them, working in the fields and singing. And I saw these long lines of excited patients waiting for free medical care. And what struck me was how rich one of the poorest countries in the world was when it came to social connections, when it came to the sense of community for survival, if nothing else, as we read here. And what I didn't expect was for God to break my heart for this country, the good old U.S. of A. Perhaps one of the poorest countries in the world when it comes to social connections. Remember, I call it like the poverty of proximity. And I was explaining this to our guide there who worked for the NGO that we were with and and he had studied in the States and then gone back to Burundi to serve the people that he loved and and, and he said, yeah, here we don't really have the luxury of independence. It's like we rely on each other for survival. I'm wondering, what if that's the way that it was always meant to be? That's the way the early church looked in Acts. And what if it's not only our physical needs, but our emotional and our spiritual needs as well? Whale. (laughs) When we look at the Bible, there's a lot of people that express loneliness throughout, including, look at this, like, the who's who's list here. We got kings, we got prophets, we got Jesus himself, the son of God, as he's hanging on the cross. If these guys can feel lonely, I think it's perfectly normal for most of us to experience loneliness at different times. But what happens when loneliness takes root in your life and becomes ongoing, it triggers deep levels of stress that affect all these other areas of our life. And so this morning, 
I kind of want to look at three windows in Scripture. And that's what these little boxes represent. Um, how many have seen the movie Back to the Future? Throwback. Okay. Now, I asked my wife, and she said she didn't remember this scene at all, but there is a scene where Marty McFly goes to his house. He's in his living room, and in the living room, there's this big picture window. And I forget what the, what the backyard looked like, but he pulls a remote off a shelf, and he begins changing the channel on the outside view. You know what I mean? I think we have a picture of, of that up there. It's like, click. You want an ocean view? Okay. You want an English garden? Click. Okay. You know, and what struck me about that is, is the image, the window that you look through changes your perspective of what's on the other side, right? And so this morning, as we look through these windows of Scripture, I'm hoping that our hearts are illuminated by what is on the other side. You down? Okay, first window is creation. Sorry, there's no cake in here. I feel really bad now. This little plant represents the garden represents creation. We're going to begin reading in Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn or tap. And this is the creation account, right? We're going to jump in a few days into the process in verse 9. Genesis 1, 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and he gathered the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. You're going to hear that line again. Verse 11, then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Verse 18, God made the lights and the vault of the sky to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. Are you seeing a theme? Verse 21, God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was what? Good. Verse 25, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So far, so good, right? Let's look at chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Hold on, how, uh, uh, everything was good. What could possibly be wrong? Sin hasn't even entered the world yet, and yet something is not good. And what is not good? It's for man to be alone. God said, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, why was it not good? Think about it. Who, who was around before Adam? 
God, or more specifically, the Godhead, right? The Holy Trinity, the three persons being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, existing in perfect community, eternally past. And when we look back at Genesis 1.26, what do we see? Let us, he's talking in communal language here, let us make man in our image, our likeness. You see, God's very nature is relational. And since we are created in his image, we were made to be in relationships. And so God created Eve and instituted human relationships. That's what the second little plant represents. (laughs) See, by design, we are created to be in community. And when we fail to live in community, like a fish trying to live out of water. And honestly, sometimes we get a little weird, kind of like this. Yes, that is my eldest son, and who I am well pleased, and no, I don't understand what is going through his mind right there. But when I look through the lens, when I look at like, when I, when I spend too much time alone, and then I try to re-enter society, that's how I feel. You know, it's like I walk up to an elevator, you know, after COVID, being locked up, for, and go to the doctor's office, walk up to the elevator, and everyone's in there looking at you, and you're like, <laughs> I don't know what to do here. How do I re-enter situation? So here's the point. Don't be a weirdo. Find yourself some real human relationships. You know, social media is great for what it is, but at its very best, it is still only pseudo-relational. The live stream is such a gift for staying connected when we're traveling or sick but it is no replacement for being in the room together because we are created for human relationships, not virtual relationships. And if I see your face frequently enough, I can tell when you walk in the room what kind of week you've had. And we need to be seen by our community. Second window, Jesus and his disciples. Now, how many of you ever played this game, Barrel of Monkeys, or have heard of it? Yeah, so I don't actually know how the game works. I used to just, in my grandma's house, I'd go over and we would just create garland or string them up across the room or different things, you know, not use them for their intended purpose. But the point is not the monkeys themselves, and yeah, the disciples were kind of sometimes goofballs and knuckleheads, but there's no association with that. The reason I'm picking this, when we talk about Jesus and the disciples, Because look when they're in the barrel, how close they are. It's like shoulder to shoulder, face to face, foot to face, whatever it is, you know, it's like this life together that we're going to talk about. So let's open again. If you got your Bibles, we're going to read Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And this is Jesus calling his disciples. And he says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those who he wanted, and they came to him. 
He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So Jesus calls the disciples, and what does he call them to? To preach, to have authority, but what's the very first thing that he calls them to? To be with him. Jesus calls the disciples to be with him. You see, when a first century rabbi would call a disciple to follow them, it was a lot more than just like, hey, why don't you follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, or Instagram, you know, keep up with with what's going on in my world, right? And no, when a rabbi called a disciple, it meant that disciple was leaving their job, they were leaving their home, they were leaving their family, and for the next few years, they were gonna spend doing everything that their rabbi did. Eating what they ate, going where they went, sleeping where they slept. Have you ever wondered if Jesus had bedhead or morning breath? <laughs> Things that make you go, hmm, right? I know 12 guys who would have known for sure because this was the kind of life that they lived. They did everything together. In fact, there was a first century blessing that was spoken over disciples and it said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And what that means is may you follow your rabbi so closely that as they walk, the dust from their sandals kicks up and cakes all over you. Kind of like this picture. <laughs> Picking on my boy today. He's just, someday he won't like this, but there's a face plant at the beach this summer. And that's just the picture I get, that the dust kicking up from the sandals of your rabbi, you're following so closely, you're just, you're covered in everything they stepped in. (laughs) It's that life together. Outside of your immediate family, who sees you, knows you, and loves you at your very worst? Where is this Christian community this visible community around us. I know some of you don't like to leave the house without taking a shower, brushing your teeth, or putting makeup on. One of the things I love about camping, especially camping with others, is that after a few days, you're all dirty, you're all smelly, right? But you're all happy because you're all together. (laughs) And so who is in your life that gets to see you and love you like that. Maybe you're thinking like, okay, well, Jesus was basically a hippie, you know, he carried his own commune around with him, and I'm not quite ready to sell my house, buy a commune, and start sharing my toothbrush with 13 other people. That's okay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, actually does a great job of painting a picture of days dedicated to community, as well as days dedicated to solitude. And solitude is not loneliness, okay? We need both. But look at this definition of solitude. It is a state of aloneness by choice that does not involve feeling lonely. Jesus himself, kind of the the picture to the extreme of communal living, even Jesus, scripture says, often withdrew to the wilderness to be alone and to pray. But he didn't live there. 
human relationships, life together. So what are those? <laughs> Let's talk about it. Window number three, Jesus' prayer for unity in John chapter 17. So right before Jesus is betrayed by Judas, he says this prayer for his disciples. That's referred to as a prayer of unity. And it goes like this, if you have your Bibles, in verse 11, chapter 17, Jesus prays, Holy Father, protect them, them being the disciples, by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now what's significant here, Jesus is praying asking for the same level of unity and community for the, among the disciples that he experiences within the Trinity. And it's not just for the disciples. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So now he's praying for you and for me and for every future believer. Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So when I was trying to figure out what to use to describe this, because how do you describe this, like, this level of community, of oneness? And there's like layers where you see in verse 21 that Jesus and the Father are somehow in each other, but also we are in them and they are in us, and I thought of nesting dolls. And Michelle asked if I would please not draw on these with permanent markers so that our kids can play with them later, and I obliged, but the picture as best as I can handle it here According to this, God the Father is inside of Jesus. Jesus is inside of God the Father, and they are in us, and we need more dolls because then we are also in them. But do you see the unity? Do you see the progression from the importance of human relationships that we were designed for to living life together, rubbing shoulders together, to now God is closer than the back of your teeth? And it's not just Christ in you because, guess what, that God the Father is, is also in Jesus and also back in the Father in every believer. And this is why he says to, that we can be one. We are not the same. We are still unique. We still have different roles to play in the kingdom, but the same spirit of God indwells all of us. And so we have one heart, one mind. That's the best I can picture how to be one, and I believe that that is the ultimate prescription for an epidemic of loneliness. And so maybe we know that. Maybe we pray for that. Maybe we understand that there's the one spirit that bonds us all together, but sometimes the introductions to other people can still be awkward. And so if you're looking for some practical handles today on how to build better social connections yourself, whether you find yourself in a season of loneliness or whether you know someone who is, or 
if you just wanna get better at creating deeper, more meaningful relationships in your life, here are nine practices that I hope will help. Some of these, by the way, borrowed from the Surgeon General's report because there's some good stuff in there and it's backed by like extensive research. And so you can, they actually say, yeah, if you engage in this, this is the, out, the predicted outcome because of all the data and research and results that we've measured over the years. So still encourage you to check that out if you want. Nine practices, number one, Invest time in nurturing your relationships through consistent, frequent, and high-quality engagement with others. Take time each day to reach out to a friend or family member. Number two, you may want to take a picture if you're trying to write all this down because we're going to scoot through them a little. Number two, minimize distraction during conversation to increase the quality of time you spend with others. For instance, don't check your phone during meals with friends, important conversations, and family time. Number three, seek out opportunities to serve and support others, either by helping your family, coworkers, friends, or strangers in your community, or by participating in community service. So when I was a young youth pastor 19 years ago, and parents would bring their broken teens to me to fix, I, would, uh, I found we had the best results when I could plug them in in a place of serving others. Somehow, by, by serving other people, it helps us to, it takes the, the perspective off of our problems and it helps to see us more as part of broader humanity. Number four, be responsive, supportive, and practice gratitude. As we practice these behaviors, others are more likely to reciprocate, strengthening our social bonds, improving relationship satisfaction, and building social capital. And again, there's data to support that. Number five, actively engage with people of different backgrounds and experiences. This can be a challenge. Sometimes we like to hang out with people that are like us, right? but engage with people of different backgrounds and experiences to expand your understanding of and relationships with others, given the benefits associated with diverse connections. Number six, participate in social and community groups, such as fitness, religious, hobby, professional, and community service organizations to foster a sense of belonging, meaning, and purpose. So can we talk about church, y'all? Church should be the one place where the two people groups with purple hair being senior saints and teenagers should find that they have more in common than they have different. The church should be a safe place where you can bring all of your questions and your doubts and your struggles with faith and your hurt and have a safe place to dialogue, a place to belong whether or not you ever believe. The church should be the sort of place where you can bring all your awkwardness and feel completely at home. We need each other. Number seven, reduce practices that lead to feelings of disconnection from others. These include harmful and excessive social media use, time spent in unhealthy relationships, and disproportionate time in front of screens instead of people. Number eight, Seek help during times of struggle with loneliness or isolation by reaching out to a family member, friend, counselor, or pastor. And I might add, 
keep an eye out for others that may be in a time of struggle themselves. Sometimes we can see it in others before they see it in themselves. And again, that's why it's so crucial for us to be physically present together whenever we can. 12, 13, 14, 15 years ago, somewhere in that range, I, was, I went through a season of what I would call depression. I was never clinically diagnosed, um, but it was a season where I just felt really unfulfilled, um, a season with just a lot of personal doubt and struggle, and, and I found myself in this pattern of withdrawal. I would clock in and out at work, and then I would go home, watch TV, and go to sleep, and I had no interest at all in engaging with humans. And a couple of my friends from church kind of noticed that I wasn't showing up to dinners and fun things, and they said, hey, everything okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just kind of don't want to be around people right now. And they extended an open invitation to their house that any time that I could for as long as I could, just to go and just be with them in an environment where I didn't have to be on. No conversations necessary. Just come and be. And the first time I went to their house and just plopped down on the couch and took a nap for an hour while they ate dinner and then I left. (laughs) Recurring visits, we began to talk and before long the season was over because it's hard to stay stuck when you're willing to make a move. Number nine, reflect the core values of connection in how you approach others in conversation and through the actions you take. Key questions to ask yourself when considering your interactions with others include, how might kindness change this situation? What would it look like to treat others with respect? How can I be of service? And how can I reflect my concern for and commitment to others? See, it's so easy, I think, especially like in the workplace, like it's so easy to get into these conversations with people because you need something from them. And so you come up with enough few little niceties to kind of, you know, get you in the door so you can ask them for something. But what if you entered each of these conversations thinking first and foremost, how can I serve this person? Wouldn't that change our perspective on the whole thing? The band comes, we're going to enter into a time of communion this morning, also referred to commonly as the Lord's Supper or um, the Eucharist. But since we use the word communion here most frequently at renovation, I thought, hey, in light of what we're talking about this morning, what if we put up the actual definition of this word? Look at this. Number one. The top definition from the dictionary is the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. The second definition is what we're doing here this morning, the service of Christian worship at which bread and wine are consecrated and shared. But isn't it interesting that the word we most commonly associate with this sacrament, that its primary definition has nothing to do with that. There's a nuance here, right? Look at some of the synonyms for communion. Fellowship, kinship, friendship, 
community, togetherness, closeness, sharing, harmony, understanding, rapport, connection, communication, association, empathy, sympathy, agreement, accord, concord, unity. Now, when I was in school in Memphis, Tennessee, 20 years ago, wow, that's way B.C., before COVID, and we had no sense of what germs were, right? And this is the way we used to do communion in our little chapel times there. There would be loaves of bread just like sitting out, and then as we felt led or directed, we would go and we would rip off a big old honking chunk of bread. It was King's Hawaiian bread. I don't know why that's significant, but it was a little sweet, you know? And man, don't you miss gluten sometimes? Where's my gluten-free people? Okay. It was so soft. <laughs> it ripped apart so beautifully. But you would rip off a big old chunk, and then you prayerfully consider who else you were going to share in communion with. It'd be like, yo, Chad, hey, man. I just felt like God's laid on my heart just to pray for you for this. Can I pray for you real quick? Pray a blessing over you and rip off a little piece and share it with him with, say, this is the body of Christ broken for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and eat. And then who else? Shannon. Shannon, I just want to thank you for being such a powerful mentor in my life over these last several months. And you've made all the difference in the way that I see ministry Take and eat. This is the body of Christ broken for the forgiveness of your sins. And there was this, as music would play in the background, there was just this hum of activity going on and sharing together. You get what I'm saying? Don't worry, we're not doing that this morning. The pandemic changed a few things. We still have individually packaged, sealed, you know, elements, and they're spaced out so you don't accidentally graze another one that you didn't mean to touch. But... This morning, as we sing and as we come to receive, I pray that that same spirit of community would be present in this place. We practice open communion here at Renovation, which means that you don't have to be a member of this local church or even a church of the Nazarene in order to participate. We just ask that you have made your personal commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then share in this. And logistically, the way it'll work when we start singing is we'll stand up, we'll come down the outer aisles, grab your elements, and then return to your seat. And I'm going to say just take them as you feel appropriate. And if God brings something to your heart that you need to pray about first or after, these altars are open, you can make an altar in your seat. If God brings someone to your mind in the room that you're like, you know what, I don't think I've ever told them how much they mean to me. Maybe you want to sneak over and just share with them a little. Maybe there's someone in the room that you need to ask forgiveness from. But let's make this a sweet time of communion this morning. Amen? Okay. If you're able, would you stand with me? On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said... This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. 
This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, I know as we come into this room, we come with all sorts of experiences from our week. Some of us feel burdened for some of the recent news events or for things that are happening in our own lives with people we know. God, there are some of us that just feel tired. (laughs) And there's some of us that woke up this morning excited that it was Sunday because we get to go and be in community with fellow believers. God, wherever we find ourselves this morning, I thank you that you have brought us together. And over these next few moments, I just pray that the same communal, relational spirit that is in you and that is in every believer would just be set free this morning. Would you lead us, God, as we come and partake of these elements? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you come as you will?